Greetings, podcast friends. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. There are thousands of voices declaring man's wisdom, but we want to discover God's wisdom. Wisdom from above. God speaks to us through the Bible. By studying and obeying the Word of God, we gain wisdom from above, and we cultivate skill in living. In this ninth season of Wisdom from Above, we're investigating various psalms to find personal guidance, practical advice, and divine insight for the tough issues of life. In this episode of Wisdom from Above, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 and how to deal with guilt. A London psychologist told Billy Graham that 70% of the people in mental hospitals in England could be released if they could just find forgiveness. A man wrote the following letter to the Internal Revenue Service. I haven't been able to sleep because last year, when I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income. I'm enclosing a check for $150. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) How do you deal with guilt? Guilt is the act or state of having done something wrong. Guilt is usually a byproduct of sin. Guilt is often due to the Holy Spirit's work in our conscience. How do you deal with sin? There are two basic options. You can continue in it, excuse it, rationalize it, deny it, cover it up, and that's what Achan did. Or you could admit it, confess it, repent it, turn from it, forsake it. That's what David did. Psalm 51 tells us how to deal with guilt. This composition, we're told, is a song for the chief musician. The composer, we're told, is David. It is a song of David. And the context, we're told, is when Nathan, the prophet, confronted David after David had joined himself to Bathsheba. The concern, of course, is how to deal with guilt, how to find forgiveness, how to get back into fellowship with God. Now, remember, David is king and Nathan is a prophet. David, the king and upholder of the law, has broken the law. But since David is the king, he has the throne, he has the army, he has the power of Israel at his disposal. He has the authority to have the prophet killed. But the king should be responsive to the prophet because the prophet is a messenger of God. The king of Israel... uh, should be responsive. But the kings of Israel often neglected or rejected the prophets. But King David listens to God's message to the prophet Nathan. We see David's petition in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, David calls on God for forgiveness, appealing to God's graciousness. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression 
and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. David uses the term transgression and sin and iniquity, talking about going against God's standard, coming short of God's standard, or distorting God's standard. But he's asking for mercy. Mercy is a bestowal of kindness that cannot be claimed. Notice that David does not say, have mercy on me because of your loving kindness. But rather, David says, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness. Because would indicate a claim on God's mercy, while according to indicates a plea for God's mercy. David is begging God for God's forgiveness in a manner that is in keeping with God's loving kindness. The next thing David asks is that God would blot out his transgressions. David is asking that his rebellion be removed from the record of God's mercy memory. Then David asks God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity. David feels like a dirty garment. His heart and life have been stained by the sin. He longs to be cleansed and washed clean. It reminds me of a Shakespearean play and a lady's desperate cry for the removal of the blood stains from her hands. Isaiah says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Man's sin is a stain. God's mercy is a purifying agent. David is not only asking God to forgive him, He's also asking God to cleanse him. He wants a clean slate. He wants to be right with God. And then we see the confession in verses 3 through 6. In these verses, David acknowledges his sin against God and his rebellion against the righteous standard that God had placed in his heart. First, there is a confession of moral Impurity in verses 3 and 4. David admits his sin and, and says that the guilt is always on his mind in verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. You see, David couldn't get it out of his mind. He had committed adultery. He had gone against God's law. He couldn't get it out of his mind. Has that ever happened to you? On a night that was um, set aside for Sharon, my wife, and I, to spend some time together, I had set up a singles tennis match between me and another guy. My conscience, prompted, I'm sure, by the Holy Spirit, like a little voice inside of me, kept telling me that I was being inconsiderate, that I wasn't living up to my priorities, that what I was doing wasn't right. But I went on to play tennis with this guy, and I felt miserable. I couldn't ask God to minister to this guy through me because I wasn't doing what I knew to be right. I couldn't ask God to clear my conscience because my conscience was convicting me of sin. I couldn't even ask God's blessing on my serve. <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? You do something you know is wrong, 
And then you just cannot get it out of your mind. You can't move ahead. You can't escape the fact that you're out of step with God. Your stomach is in knots. The guilt of your transgression keeps on eating away at you. That's what David was feeling. His sin was ever before him. And then in verse 4, he says his his rebellion was against God. Listen as he writes, against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So David is saying he is, his sin was against God. In fact, he says it was against you and you only. Is David saying he did not sin against Bathsheba or Uriah? No. He did sin against Bathsheba. He did sin against Uriah. What is David saying? David is saying that Bathsheba was made in the image of God and he committed adultery against one made in the image of God. He's saying Uriah was made in the image of God and he committed murder against one made in the image of God. So his sin was a sin against God who had made these two in his image. David is also acknowledging that he had disobeyed the word of God, which says, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not murder. David had willfully violated a woman and willfully murdered a man who were created in the image of God and he had intentionally disobeyed the commands of God. David acknowledges that what he had done was evil. David knows that whatever God decides will be just. He's asking God to make a judgment and forgive him. After the confession of moral impurity, we see the confession of moral inclination in verses 5 and 6. David says he was a sinner from birth. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He sees this as his underlying problem. This is the classic passage cited on the doctrine of original sin. Now, David isn't trying to justify himself. He is simply stating that he has been a sinner from the time of his birth. Sin entered into the world through Adam, and the sinful nature is passed on from generation to generation. And David realizes that he is a sinner. So do I. At times, I find myself attracted to sin rather than repudiated by it. I can drift into sin, but I have to discipline myself into righteousness. The songwriter was right on target when he wrote these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Apostle Paul sensed the same thing, writing, The good that I want to do, I fail to do. And the bad that I want to avoid, I find myself doing. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sinful flesh? So David's a sinner from birth. He also says that God delighted in him while he was still in the womb. And while in the womb, God had put a standard of truth in his heart. He says, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. David admits that his decision-making process had broken down. He had a standard of truth in his heart. He knew how to live according to the truth. But instead of doing that, 
He revolted against that standard. He chose pleasure over purity. He chose rebellion over righteousness. So David has acknowledged his sin, doing evil in the sight of God. And now we see six pleas. Three pleas for forgiveness in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, David utters a plea for ceremonial forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In the Old Testament days, hyssop was used in cleansing from leprosy, cleansing with the ashes of the red heifer, and sprinkling blood on the doorposts. It always implied the shedding and sprinkling of blood. And it was for ceremonial forgiveness. Ceremonial forgiveness opens the door to worship. In verse 8, David utters a plea for emotional forgiveness. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David wants to hear a word of forgiveness, specifically a word of God's forgiveness through prophet Nathan, in order that the bones which God had broken might rejoice. Bones represent the emotional structure of a man. And when there is a distance between God and man, the whole being groans until it is taken care of. When there is a distance between me and God, my whole being groans until I get it taken care of. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the need for emotional forgiveness is often signaled by a knot in the pit of my stomach. Emotional forgiveness opens the door to joy. Ceremonial forgiveness opens the door to worship. Emotional forgiveness opens the door to joy. And in verse 9, we see a plea for legal forgiveness. And it's called forensic forgiveness. And that forgiveness opens the door to freedom. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is when the debt is paid, the charges are dropped, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgotten. After these three pleas for forgiveness, David utters three pleas for moral renewal. In verse 10, a plea for restoration of right thinking. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David asked God to create in him a clean heart. The heart in the Old Testament was looked upon as one's thinking apparatus. Your heart is your volition as informed by the way you think and feel. And David is asking God to create in him a a clean way of thinking, or a new way of thinking. You see, sin breaks down our decision-making process. Sin clouds our thinking, captures our emotions, causes us to lose control, makes us indecisive, leaves us vacillating. Therefore, God wanted, excuse me, David wanted God to renew in him a new, pure, clean, right way of thinking. You know, if we were thinking right, temptation wouldn't be very effective. We would be easily able to resist it. But we often don't think right. The problem is that we can be deceived. 
our thinking apparatus gets messed up by worldly thinking, by false values, and by lies that we believe. There is a danger of weighing the pros and cons of sin. Faulty thinking places the thrill of temporary pleasure over the joy of lasting purity. Faulty thinking minimizes the consequences of sin or justifies sin. Remember, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. We need to think rightly. We need a clean, right way of thinking. Verse 11, there's a plea for the restoration of right position. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David has two specific concerns here. First, he doesn't want to be cut off from his fellowship with God. Second, he does not want the Holy Spirit taken away from him. Now, every time we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. And in the Old Testament, since there was not a permanent indwelling of believers in the Old Testament, as there is in the church age, David feared that the Holy Spirit would be taken away from him. And David begs God to allow him not only to remain in close fellowship with God, but also to continue to enjoy the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's then talk about us, you and me, in the church age. Uh, as believers, we can be filled with the Spirit. Or as believers, we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit in control of your thought life, your moral life, your financial life, your physical life, your spiritual life? The Holy Spirit cannot be taken away from a believer, but we can grieve Him. We can quench Him. A believer's relationship with God cannot be broken, but his fellowship with God can be broken. Is your fellowship with God broken? Then in verse 12, there is a plea for a restoration of right attitude. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. So David is begging God to restore to him the joy of his salvation and to support him with a willing spirit. David longs to once again enjoy the warmth and intimacy and happiness and joy of God's presence and power in his life. David longs to have a heart that desires to please God, a spirit that longs to obey God, an unreserved commitment to do whatever God asks. A willing spirit indicates a total commitment to God and an abandonment of self. And then David issues, utters, he utters, I could say, three vows. Vow number one. I will teach rebels about an obedient heart. This is verse 13. David wants to teach rebels of God's graciousness from the standpoint of personal forgiveness with the hopes that others who are missing the standard that God has set will turn back to God as he has. His second vow, I will praise God with a grateful heart. You see, God demands vindication for the shedding of innocent blood. Hebrew thought indicates that innocent blood has the 
power to cry out to God for vengeance. And David asked God to deliver him from blood guiltiness. David declares that when delivered from the guilt of bloodshed, his tongue will sing aloud of God's righteousness. You see, David is morally undone, and therefore he cannot praise God. David asks the Lord to forgive him, and thereby enable him once again to praise God. Are you in a situation where your words or actions have been so willfully disobedient that you know God is grieved by your life, and you're not even worthy to come before him, to praise him, and to worship him? That's how David felt. And David wanted to get right with God so he could once again worship God in song and in word, in righteousness and in gratefulness. And we need to get right with God. We we need to confess sin and, and get right with God so we can worship him and praise him. Vow number three, I will give the sacrifice of a broken heart. David says the reason he does not offer sacrifice is because God would not delight in sacrifice. If God would delight in sacrifices, David would give them. Well, David David is not denying the value of sacrifices. He's already asked for cleansing morally and forensically. And in verse 7, he pled for ceremonial forgiveness through shedding of blood of a sacrifice. But David knows that the sacrifices that are truly pleasing to God are a broken spirit and a broken heart. What does this mean? David is simply recognizing the truth of what Samuel declared to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15.22. To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, God delights in obedience God would rather we obey him than that we disobey him and sacrifice. And so when we disobey, God longs for a broken heart, that we be grieved and heartbroken, that we grieved the heart of God, that we willfully disobeyed God. And then there's the final prayer in verses 18 and 19 where David asks God to spare Jerusalem from the effects of his sin. David knows his sin will affect Jerusalem. His sin affected himself, his wives, his children, his officers, his soldiers, his people, and his country. But David asked God and his sovereign grace to deliver Jerusalem from the ripple effect of his sin and thereby to enable Jerusalem to continue to worship and praise God. We need to remember that our sin causes ripples that affect our family and friends, our co-workers and associates, our church and our community. I want to wrap this episode up with seven practical applications for us to take with us from Psalm 51. Challenge number one, heeding Augustine's exhortation. St. Augustine said this, David's fall should put on guard those who have not fallen and save from despair those who have fallen. In other words, if you have not fallen, take heed. And if you have fallen, there is hope. Challenge number two, Remember the harvest principle. 
Forgiveness does not break the biblical harvest principle. The harvest principle is stated in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. It's very important that you understand this because many people have adopted a religious kiss and make up philosophy. It goes something like this. Go ahead and sin if you want to because God will forgive you. And, and then when he forgives you, it'll be just as though you never sinned. That is wrong thinking. That is the reasoning of a twisted heart. Forgiveness does not break the biblical harvest principle. Take a look at the harvest that came from David's sin. David took Uriah's babe, and God took David's baby. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and David's son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar. David murdered Uriah, and David's son Absalom murdered David's son Amnon. So there are often ripple effects from our sin. There is a harvest. That's the harvest principle. Now granted, there are exceptions of mercy where God steps in and stops the ripple effect of our sin. There are exceptions of mercy where God steps in and stops this harvest of our sin. But we need to be, to not be deceived because God is not mocked and what we sow, we will reap. Challenge number three, keeping short accounts. Keep short accounts with God. David went for months without confessing his double sin of murder and adultery. David describes that period of time as follows in Psalm 32. While I kept silent about my sin, My body wasted away, groaning all day long. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. My vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. When he finally confessed his sin, he described himself as forgiven, delivered, loved, glad, rejoicing. What do you do about sin? Do you cover it up or do you confess it? We need to confess it, and we need to confess it as soon as possible. Keep short accounts with God. By that I mean when you sin, don't carry that sin and the guilt of that sin all day or for days or weeks or months. Confess it as soon as possible. And if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Challenge number four, renewing your mind. David asked God to rebuild his decision-making process, which, he had, which had broken down. He wanted a new heart, a clean heart. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So we need to be careful about our thinking. We need a clean, right way of thinking. We need to bring our thoughts into captivity to Christ. We need to, how do you feel about sin? Is it attraction or is it repudiation? Ask God to instill in your heart a hatred for sin. Challenge number five, extending forgiveness. Forgiveness provides a great opportunity to develop Christ-likeness. 
Matthew 18 tells of a young man who didn't allow being forgiven to change him. Let it change you. You not only can be forgiven, but you can forgive. Do it this week. Don't carry grudges. Don't let bitterness destroy you. Bitterness does far more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to the vessel on which it is poured. Challenge number six, make the commitments David made to teach others about an obedient heart, to praise God with a grateful heart, and to give sacrifices of a broken heart. And then challenge number seven, experiencing joy. David cries out to God, asking him to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. You know, God can't restore something that never existed. Some of you today have never experienced the joy of salvation. You've never experienced the reality of God's love, the relief of forgiveness, and the joy of salvation. What are you waiting for? God loves you. Christ died for you. Trust in Jesus as your own Savior, believing that he died for your sin and he rose from the dead and you'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll be adopted into God's family, and you'll be given the assurance of eternal life and the joy of salvation. That's Psalm 51, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes this episode of Wisdom from Above. Next week, we will look at a psalm that tells us how to deal with envy. Thank you for being part of my listening family. Thank you for telling others about this podcast. Thank you for your love and support. This is Dr. Harlan Betts, wishing you a great week and God's blessings. I am honored that you are joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above. <laughs>